Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you're tuning in. We have another amazing guest on the podcast today. A few weeks ago, I stumbled upon my old colleague, Nate's Facebook post. He was promoting his business partner, Matt's Medium post, that was titled Managing with Mental Health Issues and Owning My Superpowers. I was immediately drawn into this approach to sharing his experience with bipolar disorder. Mental health is a topic that's really important to address, so I was determined to have the writer, Matt Glazer, on the podcast. So here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get started with you telling us a bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from, where you live, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I am a native Texan. Um, I have lived in Texas most of my life, but I've also done a lot of work across the country. I started actually in political campaigns. I uh, used to watch ER and West Wing when I was a kid, and I had a really awesome mom who wanted me to experience both. And when I saw blood the first time, I passed out. So at a young <laughs> age, I kind of felt like I was destined to be in political campaigns and the next Josh Lyman. But after a couple of years doing that, and when I say a couple, about 10, I moved over to the nonprofit world and then started moving into the startup and entrepreneurial world. And that's where I am today. Love it. So I know you work with Nate at Blue Sky. Can you tell us a little bit about what Blue Sky is and what you do there? Yeah, it's a boutique uh, service consulting company. We really help, uh, as Nate puts it, startups start up so they can focus on starting up. Um, and it's it's just a really great way for us to work with folks on either figuring out or preserving their culture and values, or if they had that really locked in, us helping them preserve that why they go and scale and grow and take on the next 10% growth. So it's uh, just started. Um, we started this year and it is going really, really well. And it's a lot of fun. And answering your question, I'm the managing director over there. So I get to work with our partners, our vendors, and uh, Nate and Tim really closely. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, Nate and I reconnected earlier this year after working on a project together a few years ago recognizing that there was a lot of synergy in the work that we both do. And, you know, maybe there's opportunity to collaborate on projects or refer clients, all that, because I do business coaching, et cetera. Yeah. So hopefully there's a way that we make something work there. Absolutely. Knowing Nate, there, there will eventually be. Exactly. That's what we got from our conversation together. So let's dig right into this article that you wrote and why we're really here today. When were you first diagnosed with bipolar disorder? And what was the process of getting that diagnosis like? So I was first diagnosed when I was in my early 20s. Um, I had been working on a campaign and I had always sort of known uh, my dad also was bipolar, but I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, what I knew was that he had issues with drug and alcohol abuse and I was sort of moving that direction. So I didn't understand why there were some days where I could plow through a wall and there were some days I struggled to just get to work. And so I wanted to go through that process. The other thing I found was that as I was getting less and less healthy because of the toll that the campaign lifestyle was having on me, I was actually struggling more and more with the disease. So I went through and got diagnosed early on um, 
in my, I think I was like 21 or 22. And it really just sort of changed the way I lived and worked. Yeah, it sounds like it's one of those things where you knew it ran in your family. It was something you're familiar with, but it was having this diagnosis yourself that helped you identify what was going on. And I guess the question is like, was it surprising that you had it? Did it make you feel better knowing that there was a name attached to it? It wasn't surprising by any means, but that doesn't mean it wasn't shocking, right? Like I still felt like, oh, this is a thing now I have to deal with. And at the time, I was so sleep deprived and I was eating so poorly and I wasn't exercising and I wasn't taking care of myself. So then it was like the question of, okay, so what meds am I going to be on? Uh, I'm really fortunate that now I don't have to be on medicine if I take care of myself and my, my partner, like she just... She knows how to deal with some of this stuff with me, and we have a really good language that we use. So I'm really lucky right now. But at the time, yeah, just getting a name to it was both shocking and hard and also was really comforting because I knew that there was a process and a plan and that what I was feeling was totally okay. Right. So you said that your partner knows how to handle this stuff. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by this stuff? you know, I'm stretched a little thin right now. I got this full-time job. I'm back in school. I mean, I'm going to point to something that happened literally this, this past Sunday where uh, I'm a naturally, I'm an introvert. I can be really, really social, but I'm naturally an introvert. And so I need to personally recharge. And so on Sunday, I didn't want to go out. I wanted to watch a lot of TV. I wanted to go on a run. And I had gotten to this level of decision fatigue where we, she was just like asking the benign question of like, what are we going to do for dinner? And it just, that was, for whatever reason, that was the question that just gave me anxiety. And I was like, look, I can't answer this question. I'm having like a borderline anxiety attack. I just need you to decide. And I can have those really frank conversations. And she was great. She ordered in Chinese. We watched way too much Parks and Rec. And we're just silently there for each other. And, you know, after 12 years of being together, like, it's amazing how she can just sort of read that and know exactly what to do. And having that support network has been really helpful. I wouldn't say that Nate and Tim, my business partners, like cuddle with me or anything, but like they're also really good at reading the situation for me. And I can really tell them like, hey, I can't go to this business meeting because I need I need that time for myself. Um, so like what back in back of the house stuff can I go work on so I can free you up? And just having those really candid conversations is really helpful. That's incredible that you have this relationship where she has an understanding of what your needs are and what works and what doesn't. And same with your business partners. What was it like telling the three of them, other friends, other people in your life, that this was something that you were living with? And how did you make that decision? I remember the first time I told somebody I had bipolar disorder, and their response was shocked that I could be accomplished, right? Like they were shocked that I had started two nonprofits. They were shocked that I could go be on stage and I wasn't like some body in the fetal position just rocking back and forth. And the first time that that really happened where I had that level of just like surprise is when I decided I needed to just go talk about it more. Yeah, I have bad days. And there are some times where I have really good days. And my bipolar is something that really does fuel me in a lot of ways. My most creative writing and the best things I've ever done from a creative standpoint have probably been when I was either in a manic or a depressive state. That's just the nature of the disease. Uh, that said, I also have to be really mindful that it cuts the other way too. So. I started sharing it pretty openly, and then I always make sure to disclose it with anybody that I'm going to go do something for a long duration of time or that could be really exhausting and taxing on, on me physically or mentally. So that includes like if I go on a vacation with somebody for 
two or three weeks, I'm always like, hey, you're probably going to experience a day where I am going to annoy the shit out of you. And it's probably my manic state. And that's fine. But you can always walk away and say, I can't handle you right now. I won't take that the wrong way. It's really incredible that you have these relationships with these people, whether it's business partners, friends, your partner, that you feel like you're able to be so open with your mental health issues and the things that you're dealing with. But I don't think that's necessarily the norm. And I wonder if there have been times that you have been open with people, whether you're going on vacation with them or whatever the relationship is, and you've gotten a response that you didn't want to hear or were surprising. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely the best case scenario that I, there's a reason I want to, wanted to be married to this woman. There's a reason I wanted to go into business with Nate and Tim. Uh, they are the ideal situation, right? They're, they're the kind of people that you want to have in your lives forever. Uh, I would be lying if I said that those were all of my interactions. Um, I've definitely had coworkers or in the nonprofit space, board members who were actively concerned or made and did things that made me uncomfortable or were not empathetic. And you just have to make life decisions at that point. It's like, are those the people you want to be around? And if you do, why? And if you don't, okay. Like, and you just have to have that confidence. And that's hard, especially when you are managing these things. But that's also one of the reasons I wrote that article. It's just, I wanted folks to know that they're not alone, that these are hard choices, and this is how I deal with them. Can you give an example of a time where someone handled things the way that you may not have appreciated? Yeah, look, I was in a nonprofit situation where I was the executive director very recently. And I had a board member I was talking to, and I said, look, I need support. I have all these revenue marks. Tell me what the budget line items are. Like we were, ha- I was having a really fiscal-oriented conversation, and at the heart of it was, I can't keep working 90-hour weeks. Like I need capacity, I need support. And the response was, we'll just work harder. And I, and I said, like, okay, but that's, that's going to tear me down mentally and physically, right? Like, that's just not healthy. And the response was, yeah, but I'm not really comfortable spending more money. And that's about the time I started thinking, if their concern is not my mental and physical health, and I'm coming at this with a, let's make a plan, and let's execute that plan, then the real question is, does this board member need to be on the board, or do I need to be working for this organization? Again, candidly, I just I said that my time at that organization should probably come to an end. And that's what I did. So unfortunate that things like that happen. And hopefully the stigma is changing and people are more open to realizing that you're serious when you say that you need support and you're not just doing this to be a lazy person. Um, I think it's clear. And I know who your business partners are to know that they work hard. And I'm sure you do as well. But it's just amazing how people have no regard for taking care of the team and making sure everyone's in a good place. I think that's right, right? Like the the nature of it is if the culture and the vision and the values aren't strong and they're not aligned, it doesn't you can't work through that, right? You can't work harder to get that to be synced up. And so once those are broken, that's kind of the ballgame, right? And so I you know, with what I do now, I talk about it as work life rhythm. People always are telling me when I go on vacation, you know, unplug, detox, do all those things. But if I were to not work for 24 hours, that's just not how my rhythm is. Like, it's not about balance. Like, I don't need some sort of like even scales and it's 50-50. Like, 
for me, it's about rhythm. And so there will be some times where I'm going to work 100 hours in a week, and there's going to be some times where I work 15, but I'm probably going to work a little bit every every week. Um, and if you once you sort of start realizing those values that are aligned, then when you're down to the 15, people shouldn't be too concerned about that. And when I say, hey, look, I need a mental health day on a Friday, if I've done 100 hours a couple times, I'm hoping at least, and this is something I'm working on, that people realize like the reason I'm taking a mental health day on a Friday is because I'm going to like go to a movie and like just play and have a long weekend. It's like, no, I need, I need the time. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly relate to something like that. Um, when I worked for other people for the first 10 years of my career, I was hustling. I was nonstop 24 seven, always available, always there. And it got a little out of control. And when I launched my own business, I realized the importance of, I like your word rhythm as opposed to balance of I'm available, I'm here, I can work crazy days and I can work crazy weeks, but there's also days where I have one call or one meeting where I just respond to a few emails and then I need the day to go to the beach or chill. And I think that that's totally normal. And I think, you know, more people getting into the workforce are looking for that type of rhythm. And in the corporate world, it's prohibited. So it's interesting to see sort of where the workforce will change, if it will change with people's needs, especially as it relates to mental health. Um, And I would push back. I think there are some really good companies leading in that space, right? Like Zappos comes to mind, Amazon, um, through Zappos and the acquisitions they've done. I think WeWork does a really great job with it. Like there are some companies that are getting really, really big and really good notoriety for the right ways where they let, they tell you to lead with your superpowers and they tell you to be aligned with what you're doing and they focus on rhythm, not balance. And if we can have that be pervasive in the nonprofit and the for-profit spaces, man, just imagine how much better this world is. Oh, totally. That's a perfect segue. You mentioned that your bipolar disorder is a superpower of yours, but I can't imagine that you always felt that way, right? So what steps did you take to get to this perspective on your illness? Just getting older, just living life. I mean, part of it is just being candid about what it all is and saying phrases like I can't or I won't um, has really helped sort of put guardrails on what the disease or the illness can be. And again, I, I struggle with that using those phrases, disease and illness. And I think you and I even talked about it via email. Like I don't, still know how to communicate about that thing because I don't feel like it is a detriment to my life. I think it's something I have to work with. But, you know, I I think the steps were just talking about it, embracing it, knowing when it's out of rhythm and knowing when it's in rhythm, um, finding things that I really love and enjoy that are aligned with me. So like I love to run. I, I try to run three or four days a week. I try to do long distance races two or three times a year, if not more. That time in my head to like just be quiet and sort of run with this like spirit of meditation has really made it easier for me to be bipolar. Meditation in the morning when I can do it, I try a couple of days a week to do it minimum. But again, just having that 15, 20 minutes of just me time, real morning and evening planning with gratitudes and like sharing what I'm grateful for with people openly, taking those moments and taking those beats has really helped. I think it really has like just changed the way that my brain works and how I perceive the world in a really positive way. I love that. I mean, it's a huge part of my life. 
How did you get into meditation, journaling, and your gratitude practice? You know, it was kind of a snowball, right? So I first found these two journals that I really love, and I've written about those too. Um, one called the Bolt Journal, and the other one is the, I think, Do Something or Best Self um, Journal. We'll link it in the show notes. The, and so, and I and I've got an article I talk about with like my morning routine, but in my morning routine, I basically talk about like how I wake up and I journal and those two things. And then I drink some coffee and I have some time to myself and I watch the news and, and I watch like actual news, not like talking head news. And that practice of like a routine in the morning that included those, it just kind of built on itself. And so what started is just morning planning, which turned into morning planning, journaling and gratitudes to meditation. And all of a sudden now, like that's just my morning routine. And so really was super organic. And I think that's why it stuck so well. Do you see a difference when you don't stick to your morning routine? Yeah, I have much more anxiety. And I don't mean that as in like, I have anxiety because I didn't have my morning catharsis, right? It's not like missing my cup of coffee. Like the other day, I didn't have time to just plan my day, just like write down where I'm going to be. So I found myself just like tied to my phone all day because I was just looking at my calendar, which meant that I would also check in on Twitter and Facebook. And then well, since I'm on my phone and I'm looking at Twitter and Facebook, let me also check my email. And all of a sudden, I was tied to my device versus I have my best self journal and it has my calendar and the things I'm trying to achieve and my gratitude. And it's just all hard copy. And so I'm not tied to this digital weight. And so it doesn't feel as much like it's pulling me down. And I feel much more empowered. The more I'm in my phone or the more I'm on my computer, the less I'm actually free to do the work. Yeah, I think that that's a really valid point, And I can definitely relate to that. And I think a big thing with routine is figuring out what works for you. Some people need to meditate in the morning and do something like that. Some people need their coffee and can't really function or communicate until they've had their coffee. So everyone's got their thing. And it's really figuring out what works best for you to get into your rhythm and keep you as consistent as you can possibly be. Are there other things other than your morning routine and running, not to say that that's not enough, obviously, that help you maintain this healthy lifestyle different from pre-diagnosis? You know, part of it was also just changing my career path, right? It's like getting out of the chaos and the fighting and the, and the, the aggressiveness that was political work, right? It, and it seems weird to say that moving from political campaign issues work to nonprofits and startup was a big shift, but it really was a big shift. There's a lot more collaboration in the world and that I work in now. And I think just being able to pick and choose who you surround yourself with is super helpful. I venture to say that I would be a borderline workaholic if I just didn't feel comfortable unplugging. But because I feel comfortable unplugging, that means I'm not a workaholic. And the thing I also do in the evening is I have books next to my bed. I don't have my phone. I don't have a TV in my bedroom. So like, that's my sanctuary. And I think the fact that I can end my day that way with someone I love and a good book, like really helps. The other thing I, I would recommend, and one of the things I do is Sunday through Thursday, I try really hard not to drink alcohol. You know, I might have an occasional glass here or there, but I don't like to end my day on, on like a depressant. Uh, alcohol affects me and my, the ability for me to sleep well at night. It's empty calories. So then it's also something that long-term makes me feel unhealthy and gross. Um, and this is just how I feel. And <clears throat> I think adding that little piece to, to my like routine of just like not drinking on the work week 
has really also helped in a lot of ways. That's great. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you find what works for you and you stick with that. And if you sort of break that cycle, you see how you feel and what works and what doesn't. I practice meditation twice a day for 20 minutes. If I miss that afternoon meditation, it is guaranteed that I will not have a good night's sleep. So I know it's not worth it to miss it. And I try to squeeze it in no matter what. So important to find those things that work for you. Yeah, I, and I agree. And I think just kind of being playful with it, right? Like finding the thing that you, the, the end point that you would love to adjust for, like, I would like to be calmer in the afternoon, and then just playing with a bunch of tactics throughout the day or the week or the month to like really sharpen that is super helpful, I think. What kind of meditation do you practice? You know, honestly, I just use Headspace. I just use that in the morning and have that coach meditation. And that, that's enough for me. Well, and you get an amazing accent included. Yeah, right. I wish I could be as calm and have that accent as the the guy who does the voicing for it. It's amazing. Andy Pudicom. What a great, 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 great voice. So let's change gears a little bit. Tell me what ways you feel that mental illness remains invisible and what ways you think that we can change that and maybe change the stigma around mental illness. I think we just got to talk about it more, right? Is that we don't look at somebody who is got physical ailments the same way we do with somebody who's got mental ailments, right? And part of that is the physical is hyper aware, whether that's because you're using something like a wheelchair or a cane or a brace, or you're dealing with something like diabetes, right? Like, I think as a culture and a society, you're very sympathetic to that. Uh, I, I think it's because it's out there and it's in our, in our face a little bit more. But the other part is that we don't talk about the mental illnesses, we, especially high performers. Like high performers need to go out there and say, I am, I deal with depression. I deal with anxiety. I deal with mania. I deal with mood swings and mood disorder. Like the high achievers more than anybody else need to just either talk about it or talk about their experiences with it to motivate others. And, and that's a hard thing to do. But I also think it's like just essential for us all to be comfortable talking about it. When you say it's hard, why do you think that is? Because it's it's like anything. It's an exercise, right? We need to have the reps to do it. Um, the more repetitions that we have, the more comfortable it is. It wasn't hard for me to write a story or an article about living my life with a mental illness, right? Because I talk about it all the time. But the very first time I talked about it, it was like asking somebody out on a date. Like my palms were sweaty. My heart rate was up. Like I was super nervous about it. And I had to sit someone down and be like, hey, I want you to know as like a colleague and a coworker, this is something I deal with. And I still remember her response. It was something to the effect of, oh, okay, okay. That's good. I mean, I'm, I, I care about you. And if, I'm, if you need something from me, just let me know. But can we go back to the meeting that you just pulled me out of? Like, it was like just a non-starter for them. And, and so just having that experience 30, 40, 50 times means, okay, great. Now I can talk to people about it really candidly. And then the next time it's, can I write about it? And the next time it's, can I do a presentation on it? And the next time it's, I mean, so it just kind of snowballs again in that really positive way. That's awesome. I mean, there needs to be more people like you who are willing to exercise that muscle and be willing to have those conversations, even if it's intimidating, because it's only going to help other people. I mean, I think about, and I hate bringing it up because I feel like it's talked about a lot, but it's also so important. When Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain passed away, everyone really went into shock over yeah. that. Like, here are two iconic people, people that 
society looked up to and aspired to be, and they were struggling. Who knew? Mm -hmm. So imagine what it would be like if the world had celebrities and influencers and high achievers walking around saying, this is something that I'm living with, but I am still and happily doing everything that I want to be doing and having the success in the world that I do. You know, I wonder what, if anything, will change from stuff like that. I I 100% agree, right? I, I, I also think that it's really easy, especially in the Western world, to sit there and look and, and glorify those lives, right? In the sense that, yeah, I, I, I've seen Anthony Bourdain speak in person, and I love his books, especially his nonfiction. Um, and I, I, I credit people like him as being the reason I love to travel. But having been on the road a lot in my life too, you know, people glorify the idea of being like on the road 210 out of 365 days a year. And I can't think of anything lonelier, right? I, the fact that people that are doing those sorts of things are not embraced. I mean, those are the folks we need to check in with more, right? And this goes back to that sort of positive feedback. If someone brings it up and talks about it, then that also gives you the ability to check in with them, right? Like my team now can feel like they check in with me, right? When I got married, my wife built in some time in our schedule for me to have alone time because she knew me being around people that love me and a hundred people was still going to be physically and mentally draining for me. And so like that is just knowing the disease. And the only reason she can do that is because we've talked about it. Right. And so there's this sort of chicken and egg of like, if we talk about it, then people check in with you. If people check in with you, the really hard things are a little less hard. And if they're a little less hard, then you can go do it longer. And if you do it longer, you can talk about it. And if you talk, I mean, it's just this wonderful cycle. And we all start having those folks check in. Yeah, that's huge. So have you met other people other than obviously your father who have bipolar disorder? Is that something that you ever were looking for or trying to connect with other people dealing with certain things that you work? I had to have, right? Just the numbers, the sheer numbers of it. I have to have met, met hundreds, if not thousands of people that are dealing with the same stuff that I am. I will say that I usually at this point, because I'm now in my late 30s, can spot somebody and say, hey, hey, do you, I mean, like, can we have a conversation real quick? Um, and I try to do it really respectfully because I don't want to pull them out, right? Like, it's not my job to out them in their, in their struggles. But the thing is that I have, I've never searched it out so much as it has, just the law, the law of large numbers, right? I, I, I absolutely have met people along the way and become really good friends with folks that are bipolar or, again, other diseases, right? Like other things that they're mental health issues. And we just, it's, it's a common language. It becomes something that we can just talk through. Is there anything that someone said to you in response to you having bipolar disorder that made you feel less than? Obviously, like, in the nonprofit, you talked about that experience, but more, you know, is there a theme or something that's been said to you that just makes it feel like icky? You know, the funny thing is it's always the backhanded compliments that, that I struggle with the most, right? It's always the, I can't believe you're an executive director and deal with this. Or the, I don't know how you could go run a marathon and be alone in your head for four hours like that. Oh my God, that just drives right, me like, crazy. Right. But like, like none of those comments are meant to be malicious, but those are the ones that weigh and hit me harder. Right. 
The ones that are like, oh, you know, I just don't think anybody with bipolar disorder should have leadership. It, when people just say stuff like that to me, it's just like, you and I are not friends. Like, I do not need you in my life. And that is like water on a duck's back. Like, it just kind of goes right off me. It's the people that I know sincerely care about me and ask, say those backhanded compliments that I really struggle with. Yeah, those are really tough. When I decided to launch this podcast, I had a conversation with a friend and client of mine, and we were talking about some of the common threads that we had with our different chronic and visible illnesses. And one of the things that we agreed to was that people stopped inviting us to things and saying something along the lines of, you didn't come the last few times. I figured you weren't up for it. Yep. That's another one I get. And I always tell people, especially as I sort of have detoxed more and more from social media, I think I find that social media really does have a negative influence in the way my brain chemistry works. And I have found that I have been less included since then. And that's fine, right? But I just, it's a constant reminder. I think the, the joke is like, you got to tell someone seven times before they actually hear you a little bit. And so it's just constantly going to like, I'm not on social media really. Please don't think that's the way to communicate with me. I'd love to be included. I love you to death. I support you and all of your choices and the things you're working on. And it pains me when. I'm not including and celebrating with you and suffering with you. Like I want to be a part of the highs and and the lows. And we just have to come back to it over and over and over again. And I think that also is just the difference too between just communicating effectively, right? This is why I think having bipolar has made me like it's a superpower is that I can come back to it and say, I don't think I'd be able to communicate like this if I didn't have this. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that you identify this as a superpower and how you don't really love the term illness or disease. And I get that. I think that's incredible that you found this term that you feel like you can attach yourself to, and it's a more positive thing than something that's negative. You mentioned earlier something about traveling two to three weeks. Tell me a little bit more about your travels and this extensive traveling that you do. So I don't travel as much as I used to. It used to be that I would travel. So when I first started my career, I would live in a new city every three to six months, minimum. Wow. And so, you know, for my first two, three years of work, I, I got to see some really cool places and I got to live in places I never would have lived in. But that was also when I was not diagnosed yet and I was going through the process of being diagnosed, like formally diagnosed. Now I probably travel at the most one week a month, maybe if I'm really, really, really busy, two weeks a month. And those are hard. Like I just spent a week in Denver and I basically woke up, went to work ate dinner, drank a little too much, went to bed, repeated for seven days. Um, and that's just grueling. It's not romantic. It's not fun. I was in a city I love and I barely saw any of it. And that's hard. But I can brace myself knowing that that's harder on me now than it was when I was younger. And I just don't pick roles that require me to be a consultant that is on the road for, you know, Monday through Thursday or Thursday through Wednesday or whatever the calendaring works. I just don't pick those roles. Yeah. That's a hard journey to be on of like constantly on the go or going on a bender like that. I can't even imagine then coming back to reality, whatever that means and coping with, you know, what do I do now? Where do I sort of restart or hit the reset button? So is there anything that you feel we haven't addressed as it relates to you, your superpower, and all things related to mental illness. Any sort of last thoughts on this? You know, we've hit it around a lot of the things, but the one thing I just, I'll go back to is I think everything in somebody's life makes them stronger. And we just need to embrace those 
life experiences across the board. Mine happens to be really in the mental health space when it comes to my personal story. But, you know, somebody succeeding or failing in business is a great lesson, right? Somebody that has had physical or like physical health issues and succeeded or failed is a great story. And I think the failures are just as interesting to me as the successes. And what someone has learned or gained from those failures are really, I reframe constantly in my teams, like, as op- opportunities for growth, right? Like, we have this like negative language and this negative stigma on all these things that happen in people's lives. That if we really just take a beat and we think about the framework of it, you know, it's not that I'm struggling with mental health issues, it's that I'm succeeding with mental health issues. Yeah. And it's amazing how if we talk about that the same way as a business that didn't succeed, right? Hey, it's not that the business didn't succeed, it was that there's a real opportunity to learn for the next business and the next idea. And those are fun things to reframe and play with. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Blue Sky Partners exist. That's one of the reasons why I wrote that article. And it's one of the reasons I try to just like live with a level of positivity that it's, I struggle with, right? Like it's, I'm not saying that it's all sunshines and, and, you know, butterflies, but I try to live more in the sunshines and butterflies than I do the Eeyore rainy days, woe is me days. And that's the journey. And there's going to be some of the downsides and the down days. But if I can just have one more positive day a week than I'd have negative days, it's a pretty good week. Um, and then it's a pretty great month. And then it's a fantastic year. And it's an amazing decade. I love that so much. Such a good point and love the reframe. As a business coach, I'm all about encouraging my clients to reframe things. I have to say, that I'm really grateful to social media for me being able to see Nate's post and your Medium article that got us to where we are here because this was an amazing conversation. Can you tell people how they can learn more about you and your work and Blue Sky and all that good stuff? Yeah, so I would love to connect with folks. I do use LinkedIn and Twitter more than any other social media. So on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, Matthew Blazer. Uh, and Twitter, it's just Matt, M-A-T-T, Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R. Uh, I'm on Medium under the same name. And then blueskypartners.co. We are currently in a brand refresh after our first year. And we would love to work with folks that are working on culture and values or scaling growth. And I would just love to hear people's questions or journey uh, on, on mental health issues and just continue to grow with others. So come find me online and let's, uh, as I put it, usually conspire and collaborate. Amazing. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Harper. This has been a a blast and I really appreciate us being able to connect like this. This is, I love these kind of dialogues. Thank you so much for doing this. Me too. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.